We've uh, prayed a lot this morning, but I want to pray a simple prayer. But I don't just want to pray a prayer. I want you to pray a prayer. I want you to bow your head for just a moment and take about uh, 10 seconds here, maybe a little longer. And I want you to pray that God opens your heart to what God has for you this morning. And because I can uh, carefully craft words, I can pray and study. We can do everything we can to get you to understand something. We can make it as clear as possible. But if we don't have open hearts... Uh, then we will ourselves bar ourselves from hearing from God. And so let's just take just a moment. You just pray to your God, your Father, your Savior. Just ask him to, to speak to you this morning. God, that's the desire of our hearts. The prayer of thousands now. That you speak to us and touch us and make us more like you. So God, do it for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. It was a peculiar moment probably in the history of all of the kingdom of God. Uh, Judah had survived the decay around it. Israel had long since gone. And now this part of this kingdom that was once united and had been divided after Solomon was in a, a terrible, terrible state. And if on this day you stepped into the palace of King Josiah in Judah, you would have found him standing there probably in his regal purple robes. He would be surrounded by um, things that had uh, been purchased from all over the world. He would have sent servants to go many, many miles away to buy the ornaments that decorated his room. It was brilliant. It was rich. Uh, it, it was a regality that most of us don't know. You see it in the Middle East a bit when you, when you step into a palace of a leader in that part of the world and everything is gold and everything's ornate and everything is priceless. And so, so here is King Josiah and he's standing in the middle of, of all the wealth that he could ever want and imagined himself to have gotten. And he's there in his purple royal robes. He's surrounded by advisors everywhere. It is an atmosphere of authority. It's an atmosphere of power. Everyone knows he's in charge. He's been in charge since he was eight years old. It's clear. And he's standing there. And he's got a scroll. And he's holding it next to his heart. He's embracing this scroll like a little child. And his eyes are red with tears. And he's wondering, how did we get this? far. Kings didn't cry. Kings ruled. They were in charge. They gave orders. They didn't cry. And Manasseh, his grandfather, was a man who was, who was terribly evil. And his, his own father, Amon, was even worse than Manasseh. Uh, and Josiah becomes king at eight years old because his father, Amon, only lasted for two years before his own advisors had killed him. His grandfather, Manasseh, ha- had, had filled the temple with idols, with pagan idols. Around the temple of Jehovah were, were homes for prostitutes because the Canaanite worship was such that you would sleep with a prostitute in the temple of the living God. And he knew it was bad. He knew that on every high hill in the whole kingdom that his father and his grandfather had erected these altars. He knew that that even outside of the capital that Solomon had had erected altars to pagan gods for all of the many concubines that he had married. He knew it was bad, but he never knew it was this bad until this day. 2 Kings 22 verse 17 says that they had forsaken God. They'd forsaken him. They'd, they'd left him behind. They had, they had decided they would follow their own way, a better way. They, they thought they knew the best way. And then here is their living God, and they forsook him altogether. It's like uh, I was hiking one time in high school, and, and I, I don't hike really much anymore, but I did then. And I was walking in the middle of the woods just outside of Lynchburg and Forest, and, and I was going through all of these woods, and I, I come in, across a clearing in the middle of the clearing, in the middle of this valley. It's this 
this old house that, that once had some former glory to it. People lived there. Children were born there. Families ate together there. It was a happy, happy place. And now it was decaying. Its, it's outside had, had nearly fallen apart. Its, its clear-coated wood had become this like, like graying, decaying kind of wood. And you walked inside the house, and, and when you were inside of it, you saw the walls that were sort of crumbling down, and the floor was sort of breaking into pieces. And, and it was like an old house. That's what it was. It had been forsaken. And I, and I think this is where the Judah was. This is where the kingdom of God was at this point. And I'll tell you, this is where so many of us are in our lives at this point. Because we, just, just out of, not, not out of volitional you know, sin against God, but just out of neglect and distraction, we forsake what's most important. And that's how this had begun. And somehow it had ended up in a kind of senseless sin that, that no one ever imagined. I mean, David would, would crawl out of his grave and cry if he knew that the temple that he had imagined was now populated with all of these, these prostitutes and pagan altars and Asherah poles and all of this, this horrendous, horrendous, horrendous stuff. And this is what Josiah stepped into. I told you he was eight years old when he became king. By the time he was 16 years old, the Bible says he started to search out the Lord. By the time he was 20 years old, he was actually starting to make some reforms. And, and he's moving around and he's, he's deciding to follow a little bit of the path of God. But when he was 26 years old, something really, really remarkable happened. It messed him up. It scarred his life. From this moment on, he was radically in love with King Jehovah. And you read about it in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 8, when it says, Hilkiah the priest said to Shepan, the secretary, I found the book of the law and the temple of the Lord. So he gave it to Shepan, who read it. Now, if you just read that slowly, you don't get the full implication of that verse there. First of all, Josiah decided to repair the temple. So he gets his, his high priest, Hilkiah, who happened to be the father of Jeremiah, incidentally, and he gets his personal secretary, Shepan. They go to collect money. They get an army of laborers together, and they're working day in and day out to build this temple to repair the gates. And they're inside the temple of God, and they find the book of the law. They, like, find the Bible. They had misplaced God's word in God's house. And you don't do it just, you don't do it just volitionally. It's not like you just decide, we're going we're gonna to lose the scroll. They had just neglected it, neglected it, neglected it, neglected it. And when you neglect it, it messes with you because, because you're like a car. And if you don't put the maintenance to the car, it starts running, running really, really badly. I, I, I told campusters not too long ago about my car when I was driving to South Carolina. And my oil light had been on for two weeks. And I just thought the light was broken, you know. <laughs> I didn't realize that maybe I could actually have a problem until I, I stop on the side of the road. And I have no oil left in my tank, you know. And I, I put like quart after quart after quart of oil. And that's how we are. If we don't fuel ourselves properly, if we don't read the instruction book, we're in deep, deep trouble. And so, so he finds the book of the law inside the temple. And then verse uh, 9 and 10 says, Then Shapan, the secretary, went to the king. Hilkiah, the priest, he says, has given me a book. And then Shapan read it in the presence of the king. Now, now this, is a, this is a child king, you know. This king's had everything he wants. Can you imagine if your eight-year-old little brother or sister became king of Judah? You know, what's the first thing they would do? Order a wee, probably. You know, they'd order 10 wees, and they don't know what they're going to do with all the wees, but they know they could do, like, martial arts stuff with the wees, you know, or they, or they, they populate the whole kingdom with their favorite candy, you know, or whatever it took. When, when young people get in power, dangerous things happen a lot of times. There are all kinds of temptations. There, there are all kinds of things, and, and, and you don't see that, like, with Josiah. Josiah just, just sought the Lord. So, so here's Shapan, the secretary. He reads the book of the law to him, and the Bible says in verse 11 of 2 Kings chapter 22, when the king heard the books of the law, he tore his 
robes. Now listen to me. Unless you lived in Hebrew culture like thousands of years ago, you cannot understand the full implication of that phrase. He tore his robes. He, he, in the middle of this ornate palace, in these regal robes that were the wealthiest, uh, the thing that the wealthiest people in the world wore, you know, that he purchased at great cost. He stands in the middle of the robe, and he, in the temple, and he, in, in the palace, and he rips his robe. And everybody's like, what's happened to the king? And, and by the way, he's probably reading Deuteronomy. You know, he's not reading one of these, like, great, happy little passages of Scripture that makes you feel good about yourself. You know, he's reading the one that keeps you from reading the one-year Bible thing, you know? Because it's a little weird sometimes. If you get through, you know, the numbers, which the book is about numbers, so they just number a lot of things, you know. It's interesting. Moving on. <laughs> so he rips his robe. I mean, the Sapiens, when they went into war, they, they would rip their robes, and they would scream at the top of their lungs. It was this, the highest emotional demonstration of this time period. When, when Caesar crosses the Rubicon, at, at, in the conclusion of it, he rips his robes in victory. In the Bible, you see it all the time. You see Joshua. Uh, Joshua had just become king of the kingdom, and he is in a war with the men of Ai, and they lose the Bible says in mourning that Joshua, he, he rips his robes and he falls down on the ground and he lays in front of the Ark of the Covenant for an entire day. You read about Ezra. Ezra, he, he rips his robes and he pulls out his hair and he screams and he weeps when he finds out that the priests of Israel have intermarried with pagans. You read about Job when, when his, he loses everything he's ever had. You know, his, his family and his wealth and his success. And he's lying there in a pot of ashes outside of the kingdom. He, the wealthiest man in the entire world at that time period. He, he never knew poverty. And here he is laboring there with lepers. And he, he weeps and he screams. And he rips his robe just before he gets there. And he, he doesn't curse God. He lays down on the ground and prays of God. You read about Mordecai. Oh, Mordecai, Mordecai hears that King Xerxes has issued an order to kill all the Jews. So the Bible says that he walked out of his house and he goes into the middle of his streets, his streets and he's weeping bitterly and he's wailing and he rips his robes and he puts on sackcloth and ashes. There's no greater emotional demonstration than this. And you know the word of God is meant to do this in our lives. I mean, and it's meant to do it like every day in our lives. I mean, this morning, you know, I'm, I'm reading in the Bible and I read Psalm chapter 16 because I, I'm going through a devotional that a friend of mine in India wrote. And he, he wrote this devotional while he was running from the police and, and some trumped up charges. And he writes this. And, and I read in Psalm chapter 16 verse 10 where, where God, David says through, through um, on behalf of God, he says, the righteous, the righteous. He said, I will not abandon them even to the grave. I won't abandon them even to the grave. Uh, uh, the grave is like the great barrier in all of history. And, and God says in Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, he won't abandon you even to the point of death. And here are the people of Israel, and they've abandoned God. I read the other morning in, in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, it says, it says, a man who lacks self-control is like a city whose walls have fallen down. And you know what that did to me? It cut my heart that morning. As I sat there and I wrote it on the palm of my hand, like I have Psalm 1610 written on it today. And I knew that I had to have self-control in my life. And, and it's not that I, I need self-control because I'm going to fall into some flagrant sin, you know, by God's grace that won't happen. You know, what I got to have self-control in is I got to figure out how to use my time, you know, and fulfill my responsibilities. And I got to honor my, my God and my friends and my family. And I got to be self-controlled in my life because everything in this world is fighting for you to lose control of yourself. 
The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, as sojourners and pilgrims, you've got to abstain from the lust which war against you. All they're trying to do is knock you off the track. You've got to get, get control of yourself. The word of God, it cuts you from the inside out. It changes you. It moves in you. It makes you into something that God has designed you to be. It rips you. If you don't open your heart to the word of God, if you don't become like this king who had every reason in the world to not respond this way to the word of God, he had every reason in the world to not do it because of his father and his grandfather. I mean, his grandfather Manasseh, Manasseh, he sacrificed his own child on the altar to a pagan god. His own child. I mean, can you imagine that horror? You know, here's, here's my little child, you know, that I, I, I've birthed, you know, and, and I mean, he didn't birth it, you know, that would be unusual. I mean, yeah, they're moving on. Okay. <laughs> His own, own child there, you know, he raises this child up and then he decides one day to appease the gods. You know, he doesn't care about Jehovah anymore to appease the gods. He's going to take his own child and he's going to go to a place called Ben-Hinnom and he's going to put his child in the altar to Malach and he's going to sacrifice his own kid. See, Josiah, his heart, there was no reason for his heart to be soft. There was no reason for him to accept the word of God. It's just, it's just when he heard this after having not seen it for so long or heard it for so long, it affected him on such a, such a great deep level. But, but he had to open his heart to it. And he did. This is how the word of God is. It's like Martin Luther, the, the great reformer, uh, who said that the, the Bible, this, this word, it's alive. It has hands that grab hold of me. It has feet and they run after me, Martin Luther said. Or it's like um, Napoleon Bonaparte, who, who one day he's sitting inside his little house there. And, and there's a Bible laying on a table. And he looks over at the Bible and he says, that Bible, it's a book to you. But it's far more than a book to me. It speaks to me as if it was a real person. Two weeks ago, I had, I had lunch with a Chinese believer that, that is a pioneer in the, in the Christian faith in China. And this guy was telling me how when the Bible was so rare and so obscure and they couldn't find it, they used to hand copy it page after page after page. And there would be these people, they called them walking Bibles. They were first generation Christians and they would memorize whole books of the Bible and whole, whole chapters of the Bible. And they, some of them actually had the whole New Testament memorized or the whole Old Testament memorized. And they'd go from place to place and they would quote it because you couldn't find the book because they believed it was a pearl and it was a treasure and that they needed it to survive. It's like William Tyndale, the 16th century reformer uh, who decided that the Bible should be in the language of every single person. Every single person should be able to read it because the Pope and the leaders of the Catholic Church had, had confined the word of God inside of their churches and within their priestdom and no one could read it and no one could look at it. And then when you, William Tyndale famously said, he said, I defy the Pope and if God spares me, I will one day make it that the boy that drives the plow in England, that he will know the scriptures better than the Pope. Now, you know, that's a real pompous thing to say, right? You know, it's like, I'm going to show up the Pope. So William Tyndale sits down with his cup of tea or coffee or whatever they drank in wherever he lived in the 16th century. And he sits down and he's drinking it. He's like, I'll defy the Pope. I'll make it to where, you know, the guy pushing the plow knows the Bible better than the Pope, you know? But you know what happened to William Tyndale? You know what happened to him? He translated it from the original languages in back rooms all over Europe. And, and then he had a printer print it. And he distributed it all over Europe. And he made the, the Catholic Church more angry and angry and angrier. And eventually they arrested him. And then they hung him and strangled him to death. And just for good measure, they burned him alive. Just because he wanted to take this book that we rarely open. 
and put it in our hands today. It's like uh, Thomas Paine said when he said, what we obtain too cheaply, we esteem too lightly. I'm telling you, I got to apologize to you guys. Because in this nation, many of you, you have inherited a kind of Christianity that is, that is a, a fragment of what it was meant to be. That is a farce. It's like one of those fishes in the ocean. And, and when the shark comes up and sw- swims up to the fish, the fish like blows up to scare the shark away. But it's all air, you know. And I think that's where so much of the church is today. That because we live in freedom and because we can stand in this room and I can teach you and there's no risk and there's no danger. You know, it's not, it's not a big deal to us, but, but I'm going to tell you, people died for this book. And they died for this book because they knew it changed lives. They knew it made people new. It, it transformed them. It, it reformed them. And, and i got to tell you, you know, you got to take this book and you got to make it a part of your life. Because if you don't do it, then you won't survive life. <coughs> and I have, a, I have a personal testimony about that. As many of you have heard, when I was 12 years old, one day I remember standing in, in the middle of my uh, garage, and I think it was Cloister Avenue in Florence, South Carolina, and <coughs> I knew that my uh, parents had had trouble, <coughs> but I never, never really knew it was this bad, and, and we had uh, just come home not too long before from Disneyland, and, and while we were in Disneyland, we had just the best time of our lives. I remember we went to the alligator place, which now I don't think is very cool at all. But then I didn't know what alligators were, so. <clears throat> and they're mean, and they eat people, you know. That's, I, if you're scared of alligators, then you should be. <clears throat> and we went all over to all the Disney parks. We had a great time together. And I remember, um, I remember one day it was raining outside so hard that we couldn't get out and do anything. So we just hung around the hotel room. We just had fun. It was like me and mom and dad. My sister, who at that point I didn't like. I love her now. <laughs> because she beat me up. <laughs> I'm just picking. I made her eat dog food, so I deserved it. <laughs> and I told her she was a robot and that we would send her back if she didn't behave. <laughs> but it was just like the greatest joy in my life. I had so much fun. And then you know, we arrived inside this garage this day, my mom came in, I don't know where my dad was, and my mom told me that, that her and my dad, that they didn't love each other anymore, and that um, they were split and parting ways, and uh, I mean, it was an earthquake, I, di- I didn't even expect it, I, I, I thought everything was okay, in fact, I used to famously tell my parents, like all the time, I told them, you know that, that like Tim Allen guy on Home Improvement, remember that show Home Improvement, like mom and dad, you remind me of like him and his wife, you know, and I thought that was a good thing, because they were on TV, <laughs> And it wasn't, <laughs> because that's, that's the example of, of marriage and family that our culture gives to us. I mean, they, they don't even give to us an example anymore. You know, all the sitcoms aren't about that. Uh, but, it, but it broke my heart. I cried myself to sleep at night. And then there was, was a time, like, a little bit later where they all came back in the room, and they told us, oh, we're getting back together again. You know, it's going to be, we're back together again. And I'm like, I, I'm jumping. You know, it's like Christmas in the middle of the spring. I'm celebrating. You know, things are great. They're wonderful. They're getting back together again. And then, like, three days later, I don't know what happened, but something happened, and it was all over. And then, and this, this, this word of divorce has a way of, of, of bringing out the worst in people. And today, my mom and my dad, they're amazing, and they love me, and they care for me, you know, and, and we're, we're 
great friends, and my dad will listen to this sermon before it gets online probably. I don't know how he does it, but he finds a way, you know. And, and my, my mom lives here, and she moved us to Lynchburg, Virginia, because she felt God wanted us here. And so, so one day Liberty sent her a letter in the mail when I was uh, uh, just finishing my freshman year of high school, and, and she just knew that we, wanted to, that we needed to be in Lynchburg, Virginia. And so, um, so we just did. We just came. We didn't have a house. We didn't have a job. We didn't have any money. They cut the power off at my house just before we left. I mean, it was, it was a, a complete, complete, complete step of faith. But like, like what ended up happening is like right before this moment in my house where my parents split up and right before my little like 12, 13-year-old walls came, came crumbling in around me, like right before that happened, we were living in North Carolina. I had a Sunday school teacher and he walks inside my room and he tells me, you got to read the word of God because it, it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces inside of your heart and it divides you up and it changes you. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And, and, and Jesus said that if you build your, your house on shifting sand, the winds will come and the thunder will crash and the earthquake will come. It will all fall down, but you got you to build your house on the rock. And the rock is the word and you, you build there and storms come and trials come and suffering come. And it will be okay. And he encouraged me every night between 9 and 9.30 to open my Bible to read a little bit. He told me to read, think, write, and do. That's what he told me. Read the Bible, think about it, stop and write down what I learned and then try to do it in my life. And about six months, a year before my parents split apart from 9 to 9.30 every night by the providence of God and by the help of this teacher who I haven't even said, I haven't even ran into him since that time period. The Lord put me on steady ground in the word of God. It had nothing to do with me. But his word changes lives. And I just think there's so many people here. So many people listening. And you've, you've lived this Christian life that it goes through the motions, right? You come here in convocation, you sing when you stand up, when you're supposed to stand up, sit down, when you're supposed to sit down. You, you, uh, you, you know all the right lingo because they made you learn it or die in Awana, you know. <laughs> At least that's, you know, I was scared to go to Awana. It made me memorize, and I hated memorizing because I was ADHD, and I just wanted to look at butterflies and think about alligators. <laughs> butterflies. <laughs> And you know what? You know what your problem is? It's real simple. God wrote you a book to guide you. And you've forsaken it. Josiah found it. You know, he may have read uh, Deuteronomy, in fact. And, and probably if he read Deuteronomy, he ran across verse 18 in chapter 17. Where it says, when the king fakes, takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. And taken from that of the priests who are the Levites. He says, hey, it, Josiah is sitting down, he's reading this book, and he hears, the first thing I was supposed to do when I became king at eight years old is I was supposed to copy my own scroll. I was supposed to do it. And he didn't do it because the word of God was lost in the temple. <laughs> and, and this broke his heart. So you know what Josiah did? It's, it's pretty crazy. Listen to what God says about Josiah in 2 Kings 22. Because your heart was responsive, you humbled yourself before the Lord. You tore your robes. You wept in my presence, and I've heard you, declares the Lord. So, so God says, because your heart was responsive, because you humbled yourself in front of me, I have heard you, 
I've heard your cry. And, and so, so it's like a two-way thing happening here. Here's Josiah. He's trying to be a good king. He doesn't have a good example because his dad died when he was 24 years old. You know, and he was only king for two years. And his grandfather, Manasseh, was a terrible king who actually had a little reform at the end of his life, by the way. You should read about that later. But he didn't have a great example. So he's just trying, trying, trying. In comes the word of God. He falls down. He screams. He, he weeps and he weeps and he weeps because of the power of this book. And he's weeping, he's weeping, he's weeping. And he begins to read it and he begins to discover that there's so many things he's done wrong. He's got to fix it. He's got to fix it. And this is the beauty of this whole story because this whole story is about grace. The whole thing's about grace. Because here was Israel, Judah. They had every reason for God to take them out, to wipe them out, to destroy them, to, to strangle them. But one man comes in at one part of his life. It doesn't matter when you're young or when you're old. It doesn't matter if you're middle age. It doesn't matter if today is the first day you've heard any of this. God is a gracious God and he repents. He has a responsive heart. He, he humbles himself in front of him. And Josiah's personal revival paved the way for a national awakening. And everything changed. You know what he did? He was probably the best king in, in all of Judah. He, he, he actually obeyed the Bible. He, he read Deuteronomy. He did it. He called everybody together. They hadn't celebrated the Passover in Many, many years, maybe hundreds of years, they hadn't celebrated it. So the Bible says Josiah gathers everybody together. He reads to them the word of God. He reads it to them. And then he institutes Passover and he even gives people lambs to sacrifice. And then he starts cleaning house. And, and the Bible says that he goes to every high hill and he rips down every altar. And he goes inside the temple of God and he pulls down every idol. And he smashes it to smithereens. And he throws it over the graves of people to defile it. And he takes the big Asherah pole, this, this fertility uh, idol that was in the temple of God. And he burns it in the valley of Kidron. And he goes to that place called Ben-Hinnon where his grandfather Manasseh had sacrificed his great uncle, who we don't know his name, and he walks to this, this place of Ben-Hinnon, and he rips it to smithereens. He defiles and desecrates it, and he makes it right. He takes all the horses that they had gone to the other part of the world to bring into the kingdom so they could fight well, but they dedicated the horses to the sun god, so he kills all the horses. He takes all the chariots for war, and he puts their security underneath God, and he decides to destroy all the chariots that have been dedicated to the sun god, and he just removes all the idols. He goes all the way back to Solomon's time. He goes to every place where Solomon had put an idol, to every single wife from another country, and he tears them all down. He defiles them, and he did it because God said so. That's why he did it. He just obeyed. And I think, how, how better would we be in our lives, and, and how more blessed would we be in our lives if we just did what we knew we should do? And I know some of you, you grew up in a, a real legalistic background. And I actually, that's another part of my life. It was all about what I do, you know. Put the finger in my face and I got to do this and not do this. Or God is going to be angry and he's going to koalop me. Koalop. You should learn that word. But you know what? It's not about God subjecting you to some narcissistic goal he has. You know what it is? It's about God saying to you, I've designed you in a unique and special way. I, I just want you to, I want you to get your oil changed like your car. I want you to get proper maintenance and I want you to put the right gasoline in your vehicle and I want you to be able to run at full speed. I don't want you to make the mistakes that so many people have made through all of history. I've given you a whole record book to describe them to you so you can mine into those, those stories and, and pull out the truth so that you don't have to make the same mistakes that, that your forefathers made. 
I, I have a unique destiny from you, for you. This is the story of Josiah. Aside from the fact that when God spoke, Josiah listened, and then he lived a life of responsiveness to God's word. He just responded in the life of a champion. Josiah was a man who lived a life responsive to the word of God. He, God spoke, he did it. He didn't delay. He just did it. God said it. God's right. I'm going to do it. <laughs> and, and the kingdom expanded. And blessing came in, and it saved a whole generation. But you know what the overarching story of Josiah is? Is that your family, it is no prophecy of your future. Because God has a unique destiny for you. And you know, our Jesus, he boasts in grace. He likes to take hard hearts and make them soft ones. He, he likes to take the least likely people, the Bin Laudens of the world, and, and to change them into Saul to Paul conversions. He really boasts in that. But you got to do exactly what Josiah did. He rips his robe. He falls on his face. And he's responsive to God. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. He doesn't care what the people are going to say about him. He doesn't care if his own advisors kill him like they killed his father. God spoke. He's right. I'm going to obey. And you know what the result was? Incomprehensible blessing. You know what? I wish I could tell you that's how it ended. But the revival of Josiah only lasted one generation. His followers... They weren't so successful. They put the idols back in the temple. They defiled everything again. And the Babylons came in 22 years later. And you read in Psalm 137 verse 1. And we sat by the rivers of Babylon. And we wept when we remembered Zion. So you got, you got a two-way path here. You follow the path of Josiah that's responsive to the word of God. That sees national revival. That begins from personal revival. Or you follow your own way, which eventually led Israel to captivity in a foreign land. And then, when they no longer had the opportunity to change, they sit by the rivers of a foreign land with a foreign language and foreign customs and foreign food and foreign people. While the walls of their city are torn down and their temple is destroyed and desecrated by the Babylonians. And they sit by the rivers of Babylon and they weep when they remembered what they had. Because what we obtain too cheaply, we esteem too lightly. And you've got to do everything in your power to work against the enemy to become everything God has designed you to be. God spoke. Josiah obeyed. And then he lived a life of responsiveness. And that's something in every one of our power. And if you do it, you know what's going to happen? You receive a kind of grace from God you can't even comprehend. Because his ways really are better than our ways. Let's pray. Jesus, we live in such an important time of history. God, I remember that um, article I read yesterday about um, the decline 
of uh, Christianity in this country and the, and the increase of it around the world. And, and God, I felt such a sense of obligation that our generation needs to step up to the plate and stop playing games and really start being radically obedient to the word. God, I thank you for a 26-year-old king that decided just to follow you and he didn't care what anybody thought. And God, I thank you that your word is powerful and that it is the answer for everything that we need in life. So God, make us a generation and make this a university that does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then God, use our responsive hearts and our personal awakenings to change this entire world for your glory. And God, I know that if we do, you will. So God, give us the grace and the strength to do it. And we'll praise you.